All right, good to see you guys. Uh, please take your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We return to the book of Revelation on Sundays, doing some topical things, and we'll return eventually to Ecclesiastes on the midweek study. But 1 Peter 3, verse 15. This is a favorite verse, of me, verse used by many apologists because it's about you know, being ready always to give an answer regarding the hope that's in you. And the Greek word that we get, or the word apologetics we get from the Greek word that's, uh, you know, translated uh, answer or a defense in this verse. And we're going to look at that, and we all need to be apologists, though, because some people believe that this verse, they seem to think it's all about apologetics ministries. And there's many apologetics ministries, and apologetics is not, the word there, by the way, is not a word that we get. Uh, actually, we get the word apologize from it, but apologetics has nothing to do with apologizing. It's not like you go up to somebody and say, hey, I hope I don't offend you. I apologize that I'm a Christian, you know. Uh, that's not what the word, it has nothing to do with apologizing in the context of apologetics and the way the Greek word is used throughout, uh, so often throughout the New Testament. It's more about re- being ready to have an answer. And it's not written to a subset of Christians who are apologists, you know. We have a strong ministry by the grace of God in our fellowship regarding apologetics, giving answers, reading to the lost. But that's not something that we are just called to or people are supposed to just, you know. There's no expert in every field of the Christian faith, right? We're all different parts of the body, called to different things. But it's not that verse, this verse, what can apply definitely and should apply to any true, genuine, biblical Christian apologetics ministry. As I said, it's not written to a subset of Christians. It's written to all Christians, we're all called to be apologists. And as I'm saying, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, be an expert on, you know, uh, design, you know, and God's design in nature, you know, the human DNA as evidences and things of that nature of the Christian faith. It's a reference to what we're supposed to all be doing as believers. It has a lot to do with just your basic, the basic Christian life that you're supposed to be living. So it's not this heady kind of thing, and it can be obviously at times, but it's not just this kind of, you know, heady thing as to, uh, you know, giving a thousand and one answers where you're just bludgeoning someone into believing because of your strong arguments, although strong arguments are a part of it. But they're attainable arguments by each and every one of us. That's what's exciting about this verse. Uh, you, when you leave here, you're going to understand that you're an apologist. You know, oh, do you like it ministries that are, you know, somebody asks you, you like apologetics? Well, yeah, I'm an apologist. Now, you may not be a very experienced apologist, but you are called to be an apologist and we'll get into that but verse 15 says but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account uh, some have an, the word answer there reason you think the Greek word there is logos for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence yet with gentleness and reverence we're supposed to be ready to give people an answer, answer for the, when they ask us about the hope that's in us. Now it's like, well, is he expecting people just to come up to us and ask us about our faith? And obviously you don't just wait till someone asks you a question, although uh, obviously you're supposed to be ready when they do. doesn't mean you don't go. Jesus commanded us to go, right, and share the gospel with every creature. So most people aren't going to ask you. So we should be going anyway. But certainly we need to be ready when someone will ask us about our faith. Now it begs the question, when you read this, you're like, hmm, how often is that going to happen? Well, when you understand the context of this verse and its setting, 
It should be happening way more than it does. And the more you live for Jesus, and the more he's first in your life, the more you're going to be involved in Christian apologetics. Because the more people are going to take notice of your life, and that you are far different than others and many professing Christians. Because being a Christian is not just believing in God. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble. The whole point of that in James 2 is they're not saved. Faith without works is dead. But it's about having Lord. It says sanctify him as what? Christ as what? Lord in your hearts. And as he, as we submit more and more to him and we're sanctified and, and we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts, the more he shows up in our lives and the more people become curious as to why our lives are different than what they see all around them. And it's important that we recognize we've been called to fight the good fight of faith. Amen. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12, to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. And we're called to fight the good fight. When we had uh, James Jackson at our men's retreat uh, from Texas, uh, live stream fellowship there in uh, Texas, uh, one of our fellowships there in Texas, a Blessed Hope there live stream group, uh, awesome group, he gave his testimony. And it was great to hear his testimony. You guys, what was he? He was a Navy SEAL. So he just talked about, he talked about what it was like being as a Navy SEAL for sometimes. And it's just interesting because Navy SEALs want to protect the country. Sometimes they're rescuing people. Uh, they're fighting uh, for the U.S. military and the, and the safety of our country, which has many enemies, uh, no doubt. Uh, but it's interesting because the Navy SEALs, they're like one of the most radical elite forces in the world. The way they're trained and everything else. And uh, it's just amazing what they go through. And their training is quite interesting I mean, because these days, I mean, you have like 18 months between, you know, boot camp, which is not a regular boot camp, right? 18 months until you're actually uh, commissioned. And it's interesting because uh, I was reading up a little about these guys and out of about 1,000 candidates, right? About 750 to 800 are washed out, okay? That means only 200 to 250 people make it. And usually the people that make it are people that believe they're fit. They've often read, they actually have a, 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 a training manual, a pre-training manual before you actually get to boot camp, you know, several pages long. And you're typically thinking that you're going to make it, but almost uh, four-fifths of the people don't that go out and try to become a Navy SEAL. And their motto is, the only easy day was yesterday. And part of their creed is, I will never quit. I will persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to physically be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up. Every time I will draw on every remaining so ounce of strength to protect my teammates and accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. And I like this part of their creed. We train for war and fight to win. I stand ready. Does that sound familiar? Peter said to be what? Always ready. I stand ready to bring the full specter of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and the goals established by my country. Well, Peter says we're supposed to always be ready. And the scriptures are very clear that the lost are hellbound. They don't know Christ. We're called not only to fight the good fight, but Jude tells us we're supposed to snatch them out of the fire. Amen? So we need to recognize as important it is for Navy SEALs to be ready for combat and be ready to protect their nation, how much more important it is for us as believers when we're doing, involved in a war that has eternal ramifications where people are either lost forever or saved forever in the end. And many people get washed out, right? 
There are many casualties of war, even among professing believers. Read the parable of the sower. Three out of the four pieces of soil, which all represent the hearts of different people who are given the word of God, aren't those who persevere in the end. So as seals for Christ, as those fighting the good fight, snatching people out of the fire, we need to go and reach the lost, but we also need to strengthen our spiritual teammates, amen? Loving one another, building one another, encouraging one another in the faith. So how are we to do this? Well, verse 15, let's look at it again. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. There is so much to unpack in this verse. And I'm not going to do it the justice. We could probably spend months on it, but we need to study other parts of the Scripture too, amen? But it's a very interesting passage. Uh, now I think right off the bat, what most people miss and most commentators miss is in 1 Peter 3.15 when it's saying sanctify Jesus as Lord in your heart. It's telling, him to get, telling you to give him the highest place in your heart and most will acknowledge that. But it's referring to him as God here. As God in your heart. Which would really be good for Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists and Scientologists and all the other isms and ists around that don't know Jesus uh, as God because Satan always wants to deny who he is. But what's really profound about this verse, I think it's very heavy, is that Peter is not only alluding to, but actually is quoting part of uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And I'll read that passage to you. Peter, or Isaiah, is a section of chapters there where he's telling Isaiah the prophet, God is telling through Isaiah, having him tell the people that they're not supposed to be afraid of all these conspiracies that are going around. They're supposed, to, not that they're not to be aware of what's going on, because the people are saying conspiracy, conspiracy. And there was a conspiracy going on. The northern kingdom of Israel was about ready to be, you know, led into captivity by the Assyrians. They were mounting their warfare. They were getting ready. And people were freaking out, though. They got their eyes off the Lord, and they got their eyes on the persecution that was coming, and they began to fear. Can you imagine if you found out that, hey, guess what? You know, in a matter of just a few weeks, the you know, former Soviet Union just joined with China and, there, and Biden, you know, because the deal he has with his son and China, everything just kind of gave in. And it just says, which is, you know, not going to happen like that, hopefully, right? But all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're going to have, you know, the, the red Chinese, you know, um, you know, just walking our streets. And we're all going to be taken captive. And we're all going to become communists and stuff and so forth. I'm not saying that's going to happen at all. I'm just saying, could you imagine if you knew that was happening in a few weeks, you'd probably freak out, right? Well, guess what? You never know what's going to happen because all kinds of things happen in different countries. Uh, or what if it, it took place where all of a sudden you found out, well, in a couple weeks, we're not allowed to go to the church anymore, period. But this time it's because of our faith, you know. We're not allowed to assemble. And if you publicly talk about Christ or share with him, you're going, you can go to prison or even die. Now, a lot of professing Christians would just throw in the towel. Because a lot of people don't even have real faith. Others with real faith, genuine faith, uh, would be really taxed and in trouble and have to make a choice. But those who put Christ first as Lord in their hearts and recognize him as God 
and exalt him as God and honor him as God in their hearts, they will have the best opportunity and will eventually and ultimately, as long as they continue to relate to him as God in their hearts, will have success. And when you understand the context of Peter's first allusion in this verse, in the context of his book, it's really, really heavy when you think about it. Why don't you get your brain around this with me? Because in 1 Peter 3.15, he's quoting from Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Peter says, in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah says, or it's written in verses 12 and 13, you are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord. Now, in verses 12 and 13, when he says it is the Lord, in verse 13, in English, it's all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, which when you see all caps in most of your translations, uh, when you just see capital L, but you see just O-R-D, it's usually speaking of who? Adonai, it's usually that Hebrew word, okay? But when you see it all capped, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, in your English Bibles, what does that typically signify is in the underlying Hebrew that the English is translated from? Man, good job. Yahweh, amen. Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, amen? So he is saying... (laughs) You are not to fear what they fear to be dread of, or be in dread of it. It is the Lord, Yahweh, YHW, it's the tetragrammaton, of hosts, of armies, whom you should regard as holy. Meaning, who you shall what? Sanctify. Regard as holy. Who you shall sanctify. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Now, it's interesting because it's even stronger, the connection in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which says, consecrate the Lord himself and he will be your fear. Sounds a lot like sanctify the Lord in your hearts, amen? And scholars are in agreement uh, that he's referring to the LXX or the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2.4. Jesus and the apostles quote over and over again. Uh, and that, but this is what's heavy. Go back to 1 Peter 3.15 now. And Peter is quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which is talking about regarding who is holy? Yahweh, right? And to fear him. So you don't have the fear of all these conspiracies and all these problems and the coming invasion. So now when you look at 3.15, Tell me, brothers and sisters, who is, who is Peter referring to as Yahweh? 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify who? Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter, in the writers of the New Testament, understood that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of creation. In fact, Paul talks about how he created all things, you know, uh, a number of times that the fullness of the deity dwelt in him in bodily form. Colossians chapter 2. Amen. He is before all things. He made all things. Colossians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians. Elsewhere. book of Hebrews says that God says to thy God, you have made everything. Father speaks to the Son. You made everything. Heavens, the earth, everything, you know. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was the beginning with God. And nothing came to being but by him. He made everything. So we see that throughout the New Testament. I am the Alpha and the Omega. At the beginning and the end, you see it, the Lord, which is and which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1.8. 
That's speaking of Jesus. Yeah, because 1-7, he says, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming with the clouds. Every eye shall see me. Uh, and they also which pierce me, and all kids of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Getting the ending. That's, you know, I won't quote the whole thing again, but it ends with the Almighty. Okay, he's the Almighty. He is Yahweh. And throughout Isaiah, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, tetragrammaton, signifying the Jews took out the vowels. So we just have the, the, the consonants, Y-H-W-H, and we try to fill in the gaps of where, what the vowels may have been. So we often say Yahweh. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced. But throughout Isaiah, the Yahweh, the true God, over and over again says, I'm the only God. I am the first and last beside me. There's no God. Amen. Thus say the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and last beside me. There's no God. And there's no Savior besides me. So you come to the New Testament, and the New Testament writers knew that he is God. And here you have a striking example of the deity of Christ, which 99% of Christians aren't aware of. It's just there. Because he's using the Septuagint, which is super strong. And the, the context for us, though, okay, it's important to understand that. That you are basically called, you are commanded, I am commanded to what? Exalt Christ, sanctify Christ, honor Christ, set apart Christ as Lord, consecrate Christ as Lord in my heart, as Yahweh, as God in my heart. You can't obey that scripture as a Jehovah's Witness. You can't obey that scripture as a Mormon. The uncreated creator of all things who is before all things who says in Isaiah, there's no God before me, there's no God after me. Mormon can't believe that. They believe he's just one of many gods in a pantheon of gods. So you understand why certain groups are considered cults and outside the pale of Christian orthodoxy. But understand for you and me, on a practical basis, we need to make sure that Jesus Christ is being honored and sanctified as Lord in our hearts. Now, how does this tie into Isaiah? What's Isaiah's concern, brothers and sisters? Come on now. Come on. What's his concern with regard to those he's addressing? That their fear of what? Persecution, their fear of uh, war and so forth is overtaking their fear of God and putting the Lord first. And when you start fearing other things other than the Lord, you start making terrible decisions that don't honor the Lord. He says, I am to be your dread. I am to be your fear. And when you start, if you fear man more than Christ, more than God, what's going to happen? The scriptures are very, very clear that many believed on Jesus, but they did not follow him, it says in the Gospel of John, because they loved the praise of men more than, love of, more than the uh, praise of God. And they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogues. So many Jews understood, they saw the miracles. They're like, whoa, they knew deep down he's the Messiah, but they didn't want to lose their place in society. And are you understanding? Peter's dealing with a context similar to that because Christians are being persecuted in the context of 1 Peter, which is important to understand now, is Peter is writing to a persecuted group of Christians who are under heavy-duty persecution, who may end up fearing man more than God. And how are they to overcome that fear of man? Just like what Isaiah said, right? Consecrate, who? Lord, Yahweh as Lord, and fear Him. Regard Him as holy, Right? So you don't fear the Assyrians. And you don't worry about this, all these conspiracies. Same with us. In Peter's day. Yes, Christians are being heavily persecuted. But fear Christ as Yahweh in your hearts. And don't fold to those fears and make terrible decisions. Ungodly decisions. Don't fall into temptations. Don't give in to persecution. Don't renounce your faith. Are you with me? Pretty heavy, huh? And we just begun. The Bible's just so rich. Especially when you 
cross-referencing, you see the interscriptural relationship between the different books and what the author and the Holy Spirit through Peter is getting at here. Now, in fact, let's look at the context. Just let's go back, look at chapter 3, verse 15, but back up a couple verses. Verse 13, he's talking about persecution. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Right? That's the key again. Who can harm you if you're proving zealous for what is good? Well, if I'm zealous for what is good, I'm more likely to harm I get killed. Paul said to live as Christ, Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and what? To die as gain. Jesus said, they're going to hand you over to be killed. Yet that one hair on your head will perish. Luke 21. What? That's because we'll be resurrected, amen? To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Who's there to harm you if you, do, if you prove zealous for what is good? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, because that could happen, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Co context, right? Fearing intimidation from the outside. Persecution. But what? Just like Isaiah, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Except now, now it's even more radical because now we know that Yahweh became flesh. Amen? God became a man. Sanctify Set apart, consecrate, honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. I ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Man, I love this, guys. We have such an awesome God. Now, this is a command. This isn't something we come and get together in fellowship and we're like, oh, you know, we're talking and Peter had this interesting idea that we might think about. No, this is a command from God. If you are not exalting Christ in your heart, setting, uh, you know, <laughs> sanctifying him as Lord in your hearts, you're in rebellion to him. Because someone or something is going to be Lord in your heart. We haven't been created in a vacuum. We have to serve the Lord God or we're going to end up serving the enemy in one way or another. Now, we're called to sanctify him in our hearts. The heart is your, your heart is the center of your being, guys. We're commanded by Jesus. He repeated the commandment that's in the Old Testament too, that the greatest of all commandments is love the Lord thy God with thy whole what? Heart, soul, strength, and mind. So we're supposed to love him with everything. By the way, that word sanctify, and we, need, we need to understand what this means. I mean, what does it mean to sanctify? Well, in Exodus 19.22, the believers were called to sanctify themselves as holy before the Lord. Now in this case, they're called to sanctify themselves, meaning set themselves apart for the Lord's service, the priest, for instance. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate or sanctify themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Yeah, we're either going to be for him or against him. We're going to sanctify him as Lord in our hearts or we're in trouble, right? In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, the priests were not only called to be sanctified, but to sanctify the Lord. Listen to this. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And therefore all the people, uh, and uh, before all the people, I will be honored. Catch that? In fact, some translations when they say sanctify the Lord, they'll say honor the Lord, okay? Here, I love this uh, scripture right here in Leviticus where the Lord's saying that, hey, you're going to come near to me, priest? You're going to consider me as holy. You're going to regard me as being separate. 
from evil and with the Lord God ontologically holy. He's a, a class of being all in himself, above, transcendent, beyond everything all else. Mind-blowing. So we need to regard him as such. And they are to honor him. In the New Testament, Jesus prayed in the Gospel, in the gospel of John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. He prayed for us that the Lord God would sanctify us, set us apart by his word. Amen? And he prayed for his disciples, but he also prayed for us. He didn't just say, he said, Father, I don't just pray for them, his disciples, but he said, I pray for those who will believe their word through their preaching. That's you. He wants to be sanctified by his word. His word sets us apart, helps us understand who we are in Christ, amen, and who we're called to be. And guess what? Here we are, being sanctified. You've come this evening to be sanctified by the word of God, amen? Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. Uh, the scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 13, that we've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus because we've been cleansed and set apart from the wicked world, which is under the wrath of God through Christ's sacrifice. Well, guess what? The priests were sanctified in the Old Testament. Guess what? We are. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 1, 14 and following says, as obedient children, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, 6, says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a saint. Over and over again, the New Testament letters are addressed to the saints. Saints aren't special believers, they're genuine believers. But here we see in 1 Peter 2.6 that we are a holy priesthood. And as a holy priesthood to God, we're supposed to be holy. And look what 1 Peter 1.14 and 16 says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. Remember how we used to live? Don't be conformed to that way of life, guys. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Listen to this. Be holy in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. For I am holy. Wow. We're called to be holy because he's holy. We can't be in rebellion to him. The Bible says he's going to make a new heaven in First Peter or Second Peter chapter three, verses twelve through fourteen. It talks about hastening the coming of the day of God when the heavens will be melted with fervent heat, the elements will be melted. It's just going to be this cosmic meltdown. And he says, because it's going to be like this, it's going to take place. What manner of lives ought you to be living in all holiness, to be found in him spotless and without blame and so forth? He's calling us to holiness, and it's interesting because Peter is warning. And he goes on to say that he's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Would heaven be heaven if there was a bunch of criminals there? Just wreaking havoc and doing evil things to each other? No. You have to become a new creation in Christ. Amen? He's going to create a new heaven and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We are the righteous of God in Christ. If anyone be in Christ, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're being fitted for heaven. It's, it's the way, I mean... God wants a people that will know him and walk with him. And so it's important that we understand that we're called to be holy. But when it says sanctify the Lord Jesus, right? Jesus as Lord in your hearts. By the way, that term kurios, when Paul uses it, we don't have time to get into it, okay? If we were going to do a few weeks on this study, we'd go through all of Paul's times where he quotes the Old Testament, right? And... References to Jesus Christ as Yahweh. Several times he does that. 
Peter does it again in 1 Peter 2, 4. He makes another allusion, allusion to that. We don't have time to get into that. I did some work on that, but I decided, man, you know, it's just too much because I can't just spend this whole time focused on the deed of Christ. We do that a lot because it's one of our favorite subjects, right? Jesus is God. But this is really cool because he's calling us to exalt him as Lord in our hearts. Sanctify him. Set him up and say, Jesus, you're Lord in my heart. You're the one. You're the center of my life. You're the one I look to to dictate my life. You're the one that I obey. You're not my co-pilot. A lot of Christians think they could have Jesus as their co-pilot. He can hang out, talk once in a while when they're in trouble. When it gets really bad, Lord, you can have the steering wheel for a little bit. That's not what God calls us to as Christians, amen? That's not Christianity, okay? That's foxhole kind of religion, jailhouse religion, although there's many people who go to prison that truly get saved. There's many others in the, in the battlefields and so forth who cry out to him for a moment. Remember when the Twin Towers got destroyed? Remember what was going on the first week or so of that? You had, yeah, churches were full, man. Until things settled down. Then they weren't so full anymore. That's sick. That's sad. That's people saying, I want you, God, when I'm afraid. But I'm going to, you know, you can be my co-pilot and come around when I'm in, in need. No, man, he needs to have the steering wheel. We need to sanctify him as Lord in our hearts. We need to make sure he has the highest place. That there's no rival thrones. There's no idols that we hold on to. In the early church, they worshiped these demon gods. They worshiped demonic hosts. Now, the physical idols they used to worship were nothing. They were just physical idols. They were portals to the demonic world. They were evil, but not in of themselves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, what do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? He said, no. He goes, but what I'm saying is that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they don't, sa they don't sacrifice to God, but to demons. And I do not want you to be sharers or participants or have fellowship with demons. He says you cannot partake of the table of the Lord or the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils and the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, guess what? Stay away from idolatry. Yeah, that idol is nothing. It's just a, a piece of plaster or a, piece, a, a rock or a piece of cement or a, a tree or a totem pole or whatever. But those are portals whereby you're opening yourself up to the demonic world. And God's called us to come away from the world of the demonic. And I love what 1 Thessalonians, I love this, these two verses, verse, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, who were a bunch of idolaters. He says, And how you turned to God from idols. I love this. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God instead of the false demon gods. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised to the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I love that. Now, today, people aren't usually worshiping false gods. Although, I will have to say this. Millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans talk more about the superheroes that are false gods <laughs> when they exalt them more than Christ, they become gods to them, than the one true God. Okay? We got to be careful. That can happen with athletes. That can happen with rock stars. That can happen with anyone where we're more excited about the things the world has to offer than the God who made us. And notice, they turned from their idols to serve the true and living God. To serve. You're, if, you're, if Jesus Christ is Lord in your hearts, you're serving him. We talk about worship, praise and worship. And too many times people think the word worship means singing and singing songs to the Lord. That's part of it. But worship in the scripture means service over and over again. We're worshipers of the one true God. 
We have to be careful because what's the most popular idol here, would you say, in the United States? What's that? Television? That could be a big one. That's definitely up there. Money? Mm, absolutely. That's one of the biggest ones for sure. Jesus said you can't serve God and what? Mammon. You can't serve two masters. Mammon means wealth. Okay? You either love the one or hate the other, hate the one and love the other. Guess what? That's a good one because guess what? Colossians 3 verse 5 warns that greed is a form of idolatry. If your life is more focused on, man, I want to get more money, more money, more money, then Jesus, woo! And then if you have Jesus right, you put him first, everything else falls into place, amen? Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you, Jesus said, right? Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and, listen to this, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay? In any of these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil passion, or evil desire, greed, all these things become idols when they're first in your life. Sensuality, which comes through a lot of things, as Jim mentioned, on the boob tube and stuff. You've got to be very, very careful. But guess what? Verse 5 of Colossians 3 warns about idolatry. But look at, listen to verses 1 through 4. What's the cure right before that? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is, when Christ, I love this, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Christ is supposed to be our life, guys. He's not supposed to be a sidekick. He's not supposed to be a co-pilot. He is our life. He's supposed to be Lord in our hearts, not us. We move over and say, Jesus, you take the wheel. You tell me what to do. You help me live for you. Here we are in fellowship, whether you're here at study or you're by a live stream, you're trying to get in the word together or, uh, or if you just put the CD in and someone gave it to you, you're looking at YouTube or whatever you're doing. You're like, hey, I want to be closer to Jesus. I want to be Lord of my life. That ought to be your attitude. And that's a good place to be. Another huge idol, which to me is the biggest in the world today, in our country at least. Paul said it would happen. The last days men will be lovers of self. Self-love. All about me. And we're not going to get into that. I just mentioned that recently in one of the studies I did. But I love what Paul says. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of my favorite verses, another thing that Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with who? With Christ. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that a beautiful passage? I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, I'm, I recognize that my old man living for myself, who I was, man, crucified. He died for me. He died for my sins. The life that I now live, it's by faith in him. I look to him. I put my trust in him. The one who loves me and gave himself for me. Amen? Life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, it's important that we understand, as I mentioned, the context here. The context of 1 Peter is a lot of persecution. In fact, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Pick it up at verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, so Satan will use suffering, just ask Job, right? Don't literally ask him, he's dead. You're not supposed to talk to the dead, but you know what I'm saying. 
but resist and affirm your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're not just obeying him. He's working in your life. Look at verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look at verse 12 now. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting, listen, why did he write to us? Exhorting and testifying that this is the true uh, grace of God. What? Stand firm in it. It's a Greek present tense imperative. If you have the King James, I think when I studied this as a new Christian, I was comparing translations in, in which you stand. But in the best manuscripts, the Greek is a present tense imperative. It's a warning to continue to stand firm in that grace, the true grace of God. So we're called to stand in that grace, stand firm when there's persecution. And how do we do that? The only way you can do that is by making sure that you're sanctifying Christ, right? Setting him apart as the Lord in your heart. Amen. That's God. He's first. No rivals. Amen. Are you with me tonight? Praise God. Got a lot of Jesus lovers here. Now let's go back to 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being what? Always being ready. Always. You know what that means in the Greek? Continually. Always. That's right. Very good. <laughs> always being ready to make a what? A defense to everyone. Everyone in the Greek is ponte, and that means just literally everyone. The gospel is for everyone, thank God, amen? You're supposed to share the word of God with everyone. God didn't just say, oh, I only want this special group of people to be saved that I, I play favorites now. No. God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only God, son, that whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. He does know who will respond and who won't. But always being ready to make a what? A defense. Okay, and the Greek word for de defense uh, is a very interesting word. It's a word that, uh, it's a compound word, apo, okay, and logia, okay, apologia, okay. Uh, people pronounce it different ways, but you can pronounce it ap uh, apolo apologia, you can pronounce it, or apologia, you know, because sometimes that same Guh sound, like in logos, same letter, is guh, you know, but some will say g, some will say guh, okay? The, more, the most important thing is that you know what it means. It's, a, it's the words translated defense in the text before us. It's a good word for defense. And the Greek word apo, okay, is, means, in this context, it means back, back. We've, talk, we've talked about that preposition a number of times. Apo means like away from, you know, as opposed to for instance, uh, ek, which is out from within. Apo is, you know, moving from a certain sphere and out. In this regard, it means to, to back, the word back, apo. And then the next word is lagas, okay? Okay, lagas. God bless you. So lagas means what? Do you remember? In the beginning was the what? Word, the lagas, amen? La means to, uh, legeo means to speak or confess, Lagos is a word or message. So it means to give back a message. Amen? To give back a message. This word has an interesting light. Uh, in the first century, New Testament, when this was written, it was used in law courts. And it was used as an, uh, to give an answer, to defend yourself if there's an accusation made against you. Okay, it's like, would it be like having a defense lawyer? 
Sometimes people were hired to defend you, and they could give an apologetic for you or an answer in your defense. And the accused in a court would be able to give an answer to their accusers. Okay? Now, it's, not, it's used in this context of giving an answer for your what? Faith. In the context often of being persecuted by non-believers. Interesting. And this is before the court of heaven, by the way. We're talking about theodicy being lived out on a daily basis all over the world. And you're called to testify about how good our God is and what he's done for you on your behalf. You're called to be a defense lawyer, not for who you are, but for what he's done in you and who he is. Amen? Now, it's interesting. Paul uses this word over and over again. And I love to look at usage, word usages to get a better understanding uh, of, of how the word's often used. And listen to some of the places Paul used it in. In 1 Corinthians 9, 3, Paul says, this is my defense to those who would examine, would examine me. In Acts 22, 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. In, this is a sad verse in 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Philippians 1, 7, when Paul's in prison, he says, my imprisonment, he said, led to what? He says, and he speaks of my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I love that because that's related to Philippians 1.16 where Paul says this. He says that we are, quote, he talks about he's being, he is, quote, set for the defense of the gospel. Okay? Okay, that's apologia. Okay? Now it's interesting. Uh, used over and over again. Paul used that word for defense of the gospel. You are supposed to defend the gospel with your hope and the reason for your hope. Now he says to always be ready to give every man what? An answer, a defense for the hope of the gospel, for the reason of the hope of the gospel. In many translations, it's the reason, it's the Greek word again, logos, message. By the way, the Christian faith is very reasonable. Why do you think so many people turn from idol gods to Christ in the first century? Why do you think Christianity, at least by professed faith, is dominant around the world over any other religion? Because it answers a question of evil like nothing else. It answers, people know there's a spiritual world of dark spirits, demonic entities. Ancient civilizations, we study anthropology through the centuries, it's by and large, they recognize there's a spiritual world. Many of them, that there's a demonic world. Christianity explains that. You see Jesus casting out the demonic the de uh, demons. It explains that there's a creator that created all things. It's more, that's incredibly powerful, even though science, so-called, tried to deny that. Now they have to all admit there's a beginning. And we're not going to get into all these different reasons because I want to stay with the spirit of the text, which isn't talking so much about giving scientific reasons for your faith, although that is part of apologetics. But he's talking about, personally, you giving reasons for your hope. And I'm, what I want to say here is that this is, again, not to a subset of would-be Christian apologists. This is written to who? Who's called to be given an answer? Every, all, every one of us. And it's not just for the seasoned Christian. It's to the new Christian that reads this passage and is able to say, okay, because they have an answer as, as, as well. Because when you come to Christ, you came to Christ for some reason, Right? You have a reason. You can at least give the reason you came and if you're trusting Jesus, no matter how weak you feel that reason might be. Give your testimony. 
One translation is, be constantly or always and perpetually ready to, to uh, be set to go and be prompt to answer everyone that asks a reason for the hope that is in you. He doesn't want us to suffer as evildoers, though. Because a lot of this verse has to do, in the passage, in the context, is the context of your lifestyle. Because what's supposed to happen here is people are noticing that your life is different. Why would somebody come up and ask you why you're a Christian and, and about the hope that you have? If you're living a wicked lifestyle, you're just like them. They're not even going to bring it up. They're just going to talk behind your back. That guy's a hypocrite. He goes to church on Sunday, he says, but man, he's laughing. He has more dirty jokes than any of us, you know? He gets drunker than everybody. He gets drunk right along with us. And, you know, and we go snap the bong loads and he's a Bogart. And he wants the biggest load or whatever. You know, people talk, constantly talk about professing Christians as being hypocrites. But these are people coming to you, whoa, your life is different. The context is there's heavy persecution and there's people, certain believers, true genuine believers, who are standing up under that persecution. They're not caving in. They're not renouncing Christ. They're maybe seeing loved ones that have been uh, sent to prison because of their faith in Christ or who have lost their lives because they've been beheaded by Nero or they've been persecuted in some radical way. Yet, and Christians are under threat. It's like, because this is to a diverse group of persecuted believers throughout uh, the, the Greco-Roman world. And it's like, how can you stand up in this? Well, I mean, I want to know, what's this hope that you have? How are you sustained? Because people are used to just totally turning from, seeing people turn from God, turn from their faith during hard times, getting bitter at God. But these are people, well, what's the answer? What's the answer? First and foremost, Christ is to be Lord in your heart. If he's Lord in your heart, if he's first in your life, no matter hell or high water, right? Fire or floods, whatever comes your way, you can stand, amen? That's the, that's the first key. So this is a devotional message in the sense of being ready for persecution, be ready for hard times, be ready for trials in your life. Whatever you go through, make sure Christ is first in your life. But then guess what? As you put Christ first in your life and people see that you're different at work, at school, in the neighborhood, wherever you are, they're going to be puzzled. What's, what's, this, what's your hope about, man? I mean, wh how are you, why are you so different, you know? And we want to make sure we don't suffer as unbelievers or as those who claim to be believers but walk wickedly. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 17, if you want to go there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, meaning you're persecuted, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of, and of God rests on you. So God's, man, you get persecuted because of righteousness sake. You're blessed. Remember Jesus said, right? Blessed are those who what? Are persecuted for righteousness sake. You're blessed. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a th or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. Don't be a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We should be shocking people when we become Christians in regard to how we don't live their lifestyle anymore. If you became a professing Christian and you're a Christian and you're still doing things that are because you want to hang out with your old friends and you're still going in the darkness, they're not going to, they're going to call you a hypocrite. They're going to say you're not real. They know deep down that there's things that are right and things that are wrong and that Christians ought not be doing 
the things that are of darkness. But they should, be, they should see that you're not doing what they used, used to do with them. And then they should be like, what? What's going on with you, man? And that should prompt questions. In fact, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time has, is past. Uh, I'm sorry. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That time's up. That was our past life. He said, that's, <laughs> you sinned sufficiently. You already lived wickedly. Don't go back to that, right? Verse 4. In all this, meaning the drinking parties, the drunkenness, all this stuff, in all this, they are what? What does it say? They're what? They're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. If you're a Christian and there people want to go get drunk, you know, oh, let's just go have some drinks, you know, and party, man. Everybody's going to work. It's happy hour, man. Let's slam some. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord. You probably won't even say that. Oh, okay. And then you go and do that and you're getting drunk with them? You're not a witness, man. They need to see that you're different. They need to see that you're different. And in the pagan world in those days, people would just go, you know, a lot of people, even pagans, were against getting drunk. But some pagans would justify it when there were banquets. Oh, well, there's a big party. I guess it's okay now. Should Christians be like that? Okay, next time you go to a Christian wedding, don't say, oh, it's a Christian wedding. Jesus turned water into wine. Therefore, I can get drunk. That's not what that means. Jesus wasn't getting people drunk. In fact, you know, it says in one book of the Old Testament, woe to you if you get people drunk. You know, that wasn't his motive. Now, it's interesting here because we're called to be different. Now, it says they'll be surprised when you don't do the same things that you used to do with them. That means, guess what? You've shocked them into getting out of their weary way of thinking, or at least enough to think about it for a little bit. And if you consistently live a godly life, they begin to have questions. You begin to answer them with your life first. Preach with your walk before your talk. Make sure you're truly following Jesus. Amen? Are you with me this evening? I'm just earnestly from the heart. It's been my heart's prayer. Lord, help us to understand that we can be true disciples and truly follow you. Okay? Now, he says, I love this, to give them an answer for the what? When they ask you, you're going to give them an answer for the what? The hope that is in you. What's the hope that's in us that he's talking about? Well, guess what? I went through a lot of Peter first, from, first, from chapter 1 through 5. It talks about our hope over and over again. And guess what? Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We have the hope because of the incarnation. You could say because God became a man. 1 Peter 1, 20. For he was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but as a what? Has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, that God became a man. Yahweh, who we sanctified our hearts, he, in the incarnation, he was known, foreknown from the past, but he's from everlasting to everlasting. The scriptures say, he that was born in Bethlehem is from everlasting. This one became a man, God, you know? And guess what? He lived. He existed. This is not like one of these false idol gods. This is one who lived. History says he lives. And even the biggest skeptics, the most popular atheists today, guess what? They by and large admit that Christ actually existed now. They used to try to deny that. Now the evidence is so strong, 
It's incredibly rare for even an, a God-hating atheist to deny that he existed. And once you get them to understand he existed, well, who is he now? He's either Lord or he's liar. Some say he's Lord, lunatic, or liar. But no, lunatic is still lying. So you can reduce it down. He's either, either Lord or he's lying. Either this one who did more good than anybody ever did and has more fruit with people building hospitals, people loving each other and blessing each other was just the biggest liar that ever existed, or he's Lord. Well, guess what? Everything we know about who he was from the Old Testament in the first coming was fulfilled. And it's all based on prophecy. Number two, the second thing we learn in Peter about our hope. 1 Peter 2.22. He who committed no what? No sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, right? I love that. He was without sin. He didn't sin, you guys. He was without sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Which, by the way, that's an allusion to, quotation from Isaiah 53, the Old Testament, which talks about the coming of the Messiah. Amen? And how there would be no deceit or guile in his mouth. So Peter understood that this one who was incarnated, which we already looked at, 122, or uh, I'm sorry, the first point that I made, and now that he's without sin. Peter lived with him for three and a half years. Never witnessed a sin. Never witnessed anything evil come out of his mouth. And we have testimony after testimony that he's without sin. Remember the centurion, you know, seeing him being reviled but not reviling back, said, surely this is the son of God, right? Number three, chapter one, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He died for us, number three. That's part of our testimony. That's part of our hope that he paid for our sins. First Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. He took our place in the cross. Amen? That's part of our hope. Number four, he reconciled us to God. He brought us to the Father and reconciled that relationship. We were separated from God because of our sin. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, what does it say? It says that he brought us to what? 1 Peter 3, 18. It says, for Christ also died for our sins once for all. The just for the unjust. There his death is again. I mentioned 1, 18 and 19. Here's again. But notice what it says as well. So that he might what? Bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So this Jesus, he was manifested in the incarnation. Amen. He lived a perfect life. He died for my sins. And then number four, what did he do? Through his death, he brought me because I was separate from God back to the Father, the Creator. Amen. That's all wonderful hope, isn't it? You're giving your hope. This is what your hope is. Okay, number five, my hope is that he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave, conquered sin, conquered death, conquered Hades, conquered hell. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, amen, to a living hope. What's that living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, amen. There's a hope. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. Are you with me? Number six, he ascended to heaven after he rose. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. He ascended to heaven. 3.22. It talks about how Jesus is at the what? Right hand of God. He ascended. Having gone into heaven. Amen? So he ascended in 
to heaven. He's at the right hand of God in many passages in Hebrews chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hey, guess what? He also is at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for me. He intercedes for me. And guess what? We have an enemy that's accused of the brethren. Okay, he's a prosecuting attorney, but we have the ultimate defense lawyer, Jesus Christ, who's the son of the Father, who pleads with his wounds what he did for us to bring us forgiveness through faith in him. Amen? He ascended to heaven. Oh, but guess what? He didn't just ascend to heaven. He is the greatest of all, and he's all over every demon. He's over every principality. He's over every power. He rules all. That's why I can put my hope in him. Look at chapter 3, verse 22 again. Who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. After what? After angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Isn't that awesome? Okay, he's the ultimate superhero and everything has to bow down to him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's another reason I put my hope in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. He's the greatest of all. Number eight, he's coming back again. Chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We eagerly await the blessed hope of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have the scripture there, Titus 2, 13 through 14. But this is number eight on my list for reasons that Christ is our hope. Amen. Because we're not only hoping in what, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, but the fact that he's coming back again and will fulfill those prophecies as well. Number nine, I'm secure in Christ. I'm kept by his power. 1 Peter 1.5. Look at 1 Peter 1.5. This is why I hope in him. He's, he, since he's the head of all principality and power, he can keep me. He can keep that which I've committed to him. Who, who, it says, who are protected, or the King James, kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God, amen, through faith, okay? It's not a deterministic thing where you're automatically kept. It says you're kept by the power of God through what? Through faith. God saves us by grace through faith, gives grace to the humble, but he risks us to the proud. But your part is to put your trust in him, amen? So as long as you're trusting Jesus, amen, you're kept by the power of God, it says, through faith for a salvation to be ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise God, we're kept by his power. Number 10, I put my hope in him because he only has his keeping power, but guess what? Because he is, he lives in my heart, man. He's the good shepherd. He guards my soul, but he's my guide. He's, he's, my, my Lord, he's my Savior. He's the one who directs me. Look at number 10. For number 10, the scripture to back that up. Look at 1 Peter 2.25. 1 Peter 2.25 says, For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How many have been lost before? Amen. There was nothing worse than being spiritually lost. You ever get lost in the woods? I've been lost in the woods. Okay. Where you're like disorientated. Hunting. You know, at least I got my gun on me. But when it's pitch dark and you see these big giant eyes looking at you, you're so grateful when it gets closer, you find out it's a cow. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? Yeah, I've been through that. Like, man, you know. But uh, guess what? There's, I've been lost also spiritually, man, under the power of the evil one. There's nothing like being found, amen. There's nothing like knowing Jesus and being saved, and not only being saved, but also that he guides us. His words are lamp to our feet, a light to our path, amen. We have the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit living in us, amen. He guides us into all truth. How beautiful is that? Praise God. I'm secure by his power. 
Okay? Number 10, we have the good shepherd. Number 11, he gives joy. I, he's my hope because guess what? One of the things that just brightens my hope up and I'd hope on it, hope in him whether things were good or bad because guess what? He's my joy and my victory in trials. He's your joy, your victory in trials. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That's why we can have joy in these trials. That's why people are going to ask about the hope that's in you. You know? They say, Steve, there's a few Steves here, but Steve up front and Steve in the way back. You're going through tough times. You know, Steve just lost his mom recently, right? And maybe you're going through something this Steve as well, right? But guess what? You can still, Steve's still rejoicing back there, man. He hurts. He loves his mom. He wants to see her again. But guess what? He's rejoicing because he knows that God can work in these trials and is working these trials to refine us and to make us more like gold and is using these things to increase who he is so people can come to know him. And so we can be his lights. In this you greatly rejoice, even though you are a little, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So you could say, hey, yeah, I'm going through a fire trials in my work. Man, how come you're not all shaken up? Man, usually when people lose a loved one, they go get hammered, they get drunk. But you still got a skip in your step. You say, yeah, you know what? I hurt in my heart because I love so-and-so who died or, or because guess what? I got to go to prison because of sharing Jesus. But guess what? Or whatever it is, you know? But guess what? I believe God's in control. And I, he promised me that he works all things together for the good, for those who love and are the call according to his purpose. He's promised me that these present sufferings that I'm going through are not to be compared to the glory, for, with the glory that's to be revealed. I can rejoice in him. Amen? I can trust him because he's proven himself over and over again. And if he gave himself for me to save me, how much more will he bless me with the life to come? Amen? We can share that with him. He gives us trials and victory. He uses these trials to refine me and to make me like gold. And number 12, he will welcome me with open arms into his eternal kingdom. Look at chapter 1, verse 7 again, but let's focus on 1, 7, the end of the verse. Verse 7 in the beginning says, So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the what? Revelation of Jesus Christ. You will, when you finish the race, you will not get a perishable wreath or a gold medal as the Olympics come up right now. You'll get something far better, something eternal. Amen? You'll get praise and glory and honor from the Lord God, Jesus Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? That's 12 great reasons in 1 Peter that we're able to rejoice in our hope. And there's 12 answers. You don't have to give every one of those answers. Don't say, man, wait a second. Let me get back to you. Let me go through these 12 answers I just had at a Bible study. You don't have to do that. Yeah, that'd be good too if you memorized those. That'd be really impressive. But you don't need to necessarily do that. You know, you need to tell your story. You need to tell your story what he's done in you. You don't have to get it, make it real complicated. Notice what he says again. Look at 1 Peter 3.15 closely. Look at it closely. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Right? Catch that? When they ask you, give them an account of the hope that's in you. Give them your testimony, what he's done in your life. Amen? 
But you know what? I, I'm, I'm newly saved. I, I don't know if I could do that, Joe. I've only been saved a little while. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, right? What did she go do right away after she got saved? She went to town and told everybody about what he did. Did they all write her off? No, because the Samaritan woman who was at noontime getting water on her own because other women wouldn't travel with her because she'd been married like a, a half a dozen times, almost five times. She's living with a guy that she's not even married to and she had a bad reputation. Her life changed radically. She goes, he told me everything about me and they came and heard Jesus for themselves. Or about how about the blind guy? Remember the Pharisees were all ticked off that he healed the blind guy? He, they got ticked off more than once about healings. But they're just all upset with the guy. And what did he say? Oh, I know was, I was blind. But now what? Now I see. I mean, come on. Well, that didn't happen to me. Yeah, it did. When we sing Amazing Grace, we're not talking about being physically blind. We're singing about being spiritually blind. We were lost, but now we're found. Let them know what Jesus did in your life. Amen? You know what's great about when you give your testimony? They can't argue with it. Isn't that cool? You know, well, what if, you know, they, give, they get in this, they get in that, they get, guess what? Give your testimony and tell them what Jesus did in your life and how your life has changed, amen? And if it's somebody that observes your life and knows you, let them see it, amen? Just be consistent and allow the Holy Spirit to change you, amen? Are you still with me? Let's look at the end of the verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Yet with what? Gentleness and reverence. Don't forget your lifestyle. Paul said, watch your life or your behavior and your doctrine. And in so doing, you will save yourself and those who hear you. That's 1 uh, Timothy 4.16. Watch your life or your doctrine. In so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. Make sure when you witness, you do it with gentleness and respect. You don't want to be like, ah, they're going to hell. Ha ah, ha, I can't wait. You know, it's like sometimes people are like that. Man, I went to years ago when Greg Laurie was more right on because he has gotten off a bit. I went to a, a Greg Laurie festival where they crusade and there were these Calvinists up there with signs with big circles around the word choice and a cross out word choice. Like you can't choose to follow Jesus. I'm like, Wow, it reminded me of the Pharisees who Jesus warned that they keep people from the kingdom of God. You know, I'm like, what in the world? You know, most Calvinists are not like that, by the way, but they were just really radical Calvinists. And some people, it's like they get the idea that God just loves them. And, and I, no, we got to be humble, recognize we're saved by grace. We should be humble about it, amen? Be in just like radical, re radically rejoicing. I can't believe God saved me, that he's that good, amen? And share with others as beggars who have received the gospel. Like those two lepers who stumbled upon the, the army that had fled when they'd encircled Israel and left all their pots and food cooking because God made it sound like an army. And they all split and these two lepers came up and they had all this free food because they're like, let's go to ask for food. They'll probably kill us, but hey, if they kill us or maybe they'll kill us, but if they don't, at least we're going to die anyway, so maybe we'll get some food. They all take off. They have all this food. They're going, how could we just eat this food? One of them says, we need to go share this with the Israelites, our fellow Israelites. And that's how we should be as believers. How could we just bask in our salvation? We need to share with others who are in need, amen? But we should come as lepers who've been cleansed, being thankful it's a free gift, not acting like we deserve anything, amen? And we should do it, it says, and I think this is very important, very, very important part of the verse. A lot of people just skip over this part 
He says to do it with what? Gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. I tell you what, you have to be gentle when you share the gospel. Don't be mean-spirited. Remember, you were blind at one time. Remember, people are belligerent toward you that you once were belligerent. I know I was. I know that I was very anti-Christ. But whether you were or not, you ought to be kind-hearted when you share the gospel because we're representing Jesus, amen? How was Jesus when he shared? He invited people to come to him freely, okay? And now sometimes he had some incredibly strong words, but we have to be careful. Sometimes we use strong words, but we make sure we're gentle in sharing them, amen? Paul says to speak the truth in love. I love that. Speak the truth in love, amen? Look at what Jesus did in first, look at verse 16, by the way, 1 Peter 3, 16. And keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In other words, they need to see your good behavior. You start getting freaked out and all nasty and mean-spirited toward people when you're sharing. They're not seeing good behavior. And that's not going to put them to shame. But if they see that you're kind-hearted, even when they're mean-spirited, it'll put them to shame. Okay? And there's other passages I don't have time to share with you and Peter that I was going to take you to regarding shame and how God uses shame to bring people to Christ. God uses conviction. He convicts us about our sin. And you, because of your behavior. Now, if you share words about Christ, but your, your behavior shows something different, what do you think they're going to go home thinking about? Your behavior. Okay? Somebody doesn't care about how much you know until they know that you love them. Okay? And you show that love with humility and reverence. Okay? A reverence toward God. A gentleness toward the people that we're sharing with, okay? Very, very important that we understand this. You know, the gospel is offensive, right? The Paul, the, Paul talks about the offense of the cross. The cross offends people when you share it. It all talks about the foolishness of the gospel to the non-believer. You know what's offensive to a non-believer? Because you're telling them, guess what? You know, you've sinned, man. You've fallen short. I was just witnessing to somebody a couple, two days ago, you know? And, uh, and a young guy, and he was seemed kind of open. You know, I was at Yolanda's. He was a waiter there, you know. And I shared the gospel with him. And I gave him the good person test, you know. And, you ever done this? You ever done that? You ever done this? You know. And I felt bad because I kept him captive there for almost 10 minutes, you know, because he had to go to other tables. But man, I, just, I had the fish on the hook, man. I just want to make sure I pull him in, you know. But you know what? If I, what if I was mean-spirited and would have been, just took my Bible and started thumping him with it, you know? He's going to just thinking, what in the world? You know, you want to show the love of Christ to people. And that's what the Bible calls us to do. There's a huge warning here that we're supposed to do it with love. You know, Peter, I love it because he's saying to be an example. Peter's the guy that took out the sword and cut off a guy's ear. Not now. Peter's changed. Look at 1 Peter 2, 24, 25. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might bring us, uh, uh, might die to sins, so that we might die to sin and, and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually strained, Right? And then he saved us. We read that verse. But you know what? What does he say about Jesus in verse 23? While he was being reviled, he what? He did not revile in return. Right? While suffering, he uttered no threats. Kept entrusting himself to God. What's that mean? That's what he did, but Peter brings it up to let us know, not that he just died for us, which is important, but why? Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? an example for you 
to follow in his steps. And that word example I've told you before is like use of a pa- for a paper where you trace something. We're supposed to trace his life and when we're reviled, not revile back. Peter learned a lot. The Holy Spirit changed his heart. And Peter, by the way, guys, do you realize when we talk about apologetics, we almost always talk about reasons to believe? And that's good. We just talked about a bunch of reasons. But guess what? They also need to see your behavior. Listen to this. Jesus said in John 13, 35, but but by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you what? If you shout the loudest when you're street witnessing? Is that what it says? No. If you love one another. Listen to John 17, 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That also they may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Wow. By us loving one another, we show who Jesus is because the pagans, they hate each other. 17 of 23 of John. Jesus prays, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world, so that the world, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There's passage after passage I'm sharing with you, verse after verse, where when we love one another and we treat people with love and people see our love for one another, that they get to see, wow, Jesus is real. Because they don't see that in the world. You've heard of the church father Tertullian? They may remember the word that he coined? Trinity, right? Well, listen, Tertullian was a great apologist in many ways, and he wrote, to the, he wrote to the Gentiles an apology, an apologetic, right? And he was attacking in this apology the pagan beliefs and their, their pagan system and uh, how it was unscriptural and how true Christianity is morally superior. And he, he, he talks about pagans looking at Christians and saying, quote, I'm quoting him, look how they love one another. For they themselves, he's speaking of pagans, hate one another and how they are ready to die for each other. For they themselves are readier to kill each other, meaning the pagans. So pagans, man, are there's many of them so ruthless, but they saw this Christian community of those who had genuinely been saved and their hearts were changed and they love one another. You know how often we hear every mission trip, pretty much everyone I've ever been on, people trip out on, on the believers that come from this fellowship. And we had 20 or so people just go to Costa Rica. Same thing we heard again. People saying, what were they saying, Chad, about what was different about this group? Love. The love. They saw the love, amen? And that's when we went to Costa Rica 15 years ago. That's what David said. David, who wants to start a Blessed Hope Chapel up there, who's one that brought us back there, he said, he said when you guys came, he said, they had different groups come. I'm not pitting us against other groups, but saying we need to show love of Christ. He goes, I saw something different. Because David was this 19-year-old kid who saw the young girls that, we, that came with us and he didn't know Christ even though he was part of this mission group that was there that hosted missionaries and he usually would focus on the young girls and he got to know some of our young girls. He said he didn't touch one, he didn't pursue them. He saw that we were different and he couldn't believe how much we loved him and poured out love to him. I remember because I kept my eye on him because I saw him making beads with them. Showed a couple how to make beads. I'm like, I gotta watch out for the little lambs in my fellowship as a pastor and I watched him, okay? And I watched them, a couple of the gals, they're just talking, you know, and stuff, but I just watched them. But now he says, yeah, I didn't know Jesus then, but he goes, you guys made such an impact on my life because I saw your guys' love. Okay? And the same thing happened this time when we went back. There were people that we met through him. Same thing. They just hadn't seen that kind of love before. And that's because people here, by the grace of God, are exalting Christ and honoring him and sanctifying him as Lord in their hearts. Amen? It's all about his grace and being surrendered to Him, and allowing the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, amen, faithfulness, meekness, flow in 
our lives. In fact, one of the quotes from Justin Martyr I love is, it's a famous one, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It causes the church to grow because Satan tries to snuff it out, but people see people's love for Christ, love for him as Lord. And it's such an alien love. And I mean that in the truest sense, the true God who's alien to this world because we're not of this world, amen? They see that love which is not of this world and it impacts them radically. You shine the light. You just love people, amen? You go the extra mile. You be that person that goes beyond what people at work do. You shine the light. You love people. You don't look for a pat on the back. You look to honor your God, amen? And then guess what? You'll start seeing fruit and people start asking you, hey, man, what's going on in your life? You seem so different. Share the reasons for your hope, amen? Tell your story. What's your story? We all have a story. Your story has three main parts. A past, a present, and a future. I was blind. I was lost. That's my story. I was just like everybody else. But Jesus saved me. He changed my life. He gave me a new heart. And I have this hope based on his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. He's coming back again. I see the prophecies being fulfilled. His word speaks to me. It's, it's way reasonable. It's perfectly reasonable. But I also have this future. I have this hope of eternal life. Amen. I have eternal life now, but I'm looking forward to the blessed hope of Jesus Christ's glorious appearing. Amen. And he's coming back again. And I don't care what trials I go through. Whatever I go through, I can have joy. And I can stand up under whatever is hostile in this world because the God of all creation loves me and gave him so for me and has planned to have me be with him forever. And you are invited to come too loves you just as much as he loved me. He poured it out the same blood he poured out for me. He poured out for you. And he invites you to come. Amen. And just tell them to come. If you're like, man, I wish I had some more, you know, just grab some tracks then, man. Just witness. Can I encourage you guys to be witnesses? To be always ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Amen. All right, can we all please stand?